Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. I'll be preaching this morning from verses 4 through 15. So John chapter 16, and as you turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, help us to delight in Your law. We pray that You would, by Your Spirit, work faith in our hearts as we hear Your Word read and preached. Use it as a means of grace unto our own perseverance. And use it as a means to call the unrepentant to grace and salvation. May anyone here this morning who does not know You, may today be the day of salvation this morning as they hear Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John 16. I'll be reading the second part of verse 4 through verse 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen? Amen. What does it mean to have the advantage? What does it mean to have the advantage? In our culture, when people speak about having the advantage, what they mean is the, the slight gain or the slight edge that is needed to tilt the chance or tilt the possibility of success in their direction. Let me give you some examples. To gain the advantage in war. The military will seek to have superior equipment, training, and intelligence, and they will do this to tilt the possibility of success in their favor. To gain the advantage in a game, an athlete will critique and correct every movement, seek to 
uh, study every single intricate play of the game. Um, he will seek to develop his body with, uh, physically, so he'll have that competitive edge that tilts the, the chances of victory in his favor. To gain the advantage of business, a company will do market research. They will lobby for laws that affect their business's desires and policies that favor them and seek to discover even their competitors' trade secrets. Why? To tilt the possibility of success in their favor. In the sermon today, when Jesus told His disciples that it was to their advantage that He was going away, Jesus does not mean that the scales of the possibility of success have been tilted slightly in their favor. Is that what Jesus meant? I don't think so. It's not what Jesus meant here. This word advantage we have already seen in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, uses this same word in Greek. You'll remember that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and His popularity comes to its height and the Sanhedrin is called together and they say, what are we going to do about this Jesus? If He keeps going on and doing these signs, the whole, whole nation will come to believe in Him and we'll lose our position of authority and power and the Roman government will come in and take away our positions of authority away from us and everyone will come to believe in Jesus. And Caiaphas, the high priest that year, unwittingly prophesies. And what does he say? He says, you know nothing. Nor do you understand that it is better or literally advantageous for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus here, in a turn of irony and John loves to write with irony. He is picking up on indeed the high priest's prophecy. He is unpacking for his disciples what that prophecy entailed. What Jesus was saying is it is to the disciples' advantage that he departs from them. And indeed, it is for our advantage too that Jesus has departed. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at why. It's our advantage that Jesus has departed. But before we look at why it's so important and why it's to our advantage that Jesus depart, I want you to understand the disadvantage that we would all have. Hypothetically. Follow me here for a moment. Alone, the disciples' witness would be helpless and disadvantaged. Alone, Without any help from Jesus or any help from the Holy Spirit, the disciples' witness would be helpless and disadvantaged. Jesus has just got done in this chapter telling His disciples about how the world is going to what? Hate them. The world is going to hate the disciples because they, they bear witness to the truth. The world is going to hate them because... Their testimony is going to convict the world of sin and the world is going to hate them because they are not of the world. They have been born from above, not of 
below. And it is in this context then that Jesus tells them how important it is that they have help in bearing this witness to the world. Why tell them this now? Jesus explains here in verse 4 that He didn't tell them these things from the beginning. He didn't tell them these things from the beginning because He was with them. Soon He would no longer be with them. But while Jesus was with the disciples, He is there to give them uh, the gumption that they need to be bold in their witness. Think about this. Think about Peter pledging to Jesus that he would follow Jesus even to the death. That we would give our lives for you, Lord. You think about the sons of thunder in Jesus' presence when the Samaritans denied, the Lord, denied Jesus. What did the sons of thunder want to do to the Samaritans? They said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Time and time again, the disciples are filled with this courage because Jesus is present with them. Even in the face of persecution. Even in the face of Jesus being arrested. They are filled with courage to serve the Lord no matter what comes. But soon, Jesus will not be with them. Jesus knows that as the Good Shepherd, that when the Good Shepherd is struck, that the sheep will do what? The sheep will be what? Scattered. And so Jesus must be present with them. Jesus must be present with them if they are going to have any help whatsoever. Alone, the disciples' witness would be helpless and disadvantaged. And Jesus is telling them that He's going away and their response, look at verse 6, is to be filled with sorrow. They don't understand where He's going. They don't understand what all this means. Look at verse 5. Now I'm going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? Jesus has talked about where He was going. They have even asked, how do we get to where you're going? But they didn't really understand the implications of what His departure meant for them. So that's what Jesus is saying here. They don't ask, where, you're go where, where are you going? What does all this mean? They have no indication of that. Instead, as verse 6 says, their hearts are filled with what? Their hearts are filled with sorrow. What Jesus is talking about here is the great day that the prophets indeed have been prophesying. Look at verse 7. Jesus tells them, I tell you the truth, it is to your what? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. The prophets of the Old Testament look forward to a day when the Spirit would be poured out upon God's people. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. The prophet Isaiah declares that there will be a day when the land will become fruitful because the Spirit is poured out from on high. Isaiah 44, verse 3. A day would come when God would pour water on the thirsty land and stream on the dry ground, pouring out His Spirit upon their offering and His blessing upon their descendants. 
Ezekiel chapter 36, that great chapter regarding the new covenant. Ezekiel sees a day when God would give them a new heart, a new spirit, removing their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, placing His Spirit within them and causing them to walk in His statutes and obey His rules. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. What does the prophet see? A day when God would pour out His Spirit on whom? On all flesh. And so what Jesus is indicating to the disciples here is that when He departs from them, He may be departing from them physically, but He is not departing from them spiritually. He is still going to be present with His disciples, and He will be present with His disciples how? By His Spirit. By the Helper. By the Comforter. By the Counselor. By the Paraclete. Alone, on their own, the disciples' witness would be helpless and disadvantaged. But the Christian's witness is never disadvantaged, but empowered by the Spirit. Think about how helpless we truly are in our witness for Christ. Think about you as Christian parents, raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, bringing them to church, leading them in family worship, praying with and for them, calling them to their need to confess Christ and repent of their sins. But as Christian parents, we know that we can't change their hearts, can we? We're powerless to change their hearts. Think about a, a friend of yours who may have defected from the faith and left the church and renounced Christ and has deconstructed uh, from Christianity. And you reason with that friend and you share the gospel with that friend and you make argumentation from Scripture and from logic and you warn that friend that if they continue going in this path that they will, they will make shipwreck of their faith. But in a situation like that, you and I are indeed powerless to change their hearts, aren't we? Think about a friend or a family member who becomes addicted to drugs or alcohol, as so many of our families have been impacted by the horrors of addiction. You, you meet with that loved one. You warn them about the destruction that this will bring to their family, their marriage, their children, their career, their health, how it will jeopardize their relationship with God. You, you stage an intervention to send them away so that they can get the help that they need. But you and I, in situations like that, truly are helpless to change their hearts. Think about preachers. Sunday by Sunday, millions of preachers around the world stand in pulpits and all kinds of true churches and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they do their best to hold up God's Word and to call God's people to perseverance and to call the lost to repentance, but... As preachers, we know that we are what? We're powerless. We can't truly change anyone's hearts. And yet so often, all of us are tempted to treat our witness like a, like a formula. If I do this, and I do this, then they will do that, and it will equal their conversion. 
It doesn't work that way, does it? If I rear my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and take them to church and Sunday school, then it will guarantee that they will be converted. Or think about preachers. If I can become the most eloquent orator of Scripture with the most charismatic of personality and have the most accurate theological exposition of the Scripture, then it will guarantee that those under my preaching ministry will be converted and persevere in the faith. It's not always so, is it? Think about a friend who has defected from the faith and become agnostic or atheistic. You can study logic and reason and Scripture and do all that you can to point out, and you might think that if you do all those things, then they will be converted. It doesn't work that way, does it? Why? Conversion is a supernatural work of God's Spirit. We have to be changed not just in our minds, but we have to be changed where? In our hearts. We have to be regenerated. We have to be called from death to life. And this is the Spirit's work. And it's not to negate our witness in any way, shape, or form. Indeed, God has declared to use our witness as a means. But that's all it is, isn't it? We are helpless and powerless to affect any true, lasting change in someone's heart without the Spirit of God. Jesus explains in this passage that the Christian's witness is never disadvantaged. It is never helpless, but it is empowered by the Spirit. Let's look at this together. How does the Spirit empower our witness? I want you to see here, number one, that the Spirit brings conviction from a disciple's witness. The Spirit brings conviction from a disciple's witness. Look with me at verse 8. Look at what Jesus says about the Spirit's work. What does He do? When He comes, He will do what? He will convict. That's part of the Spirit's work, is to bring Conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings conviction. He exposes. He convinces. He cuts straight to the heart and causes someone's conscience to be pricked and to be changed. Jesus explains this. He unpacks it in three ways. Here in this passage, He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What does He mean by that? Let's look at each one of these in part. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not what believe in Me. So this is the first work of the Holy Spirit in conviction. Is that the Holy Spirit exposes a person's sin to them. They begin to realize that they have rejected Christ, that they have not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what the Holy Spirit does is He brings conviction to the sinner's heart because that sinner has rejected Christ. What else does the Spirit do? Look with me at verse 10. Concerning righteousness. That's interesting. What does it mean to convict someone concerning 
righteousness. And Jesus, he says, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. What does all this mean? Well, the world has their own standard of righteousness, don't they? The world in their own eyes thinks that they are indeed righteous. The world presumes that one day, if they stand before God, that they will stand righteously because they have done their best. Indeed, there were many Jews in Jesus' day. Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Jews who witnessed Jesus' signs, miracles, and wonders, and yet rejected Him. They would claim to have what? A righteousness of their own. If a Jew was asked during Jesus' day, are you, are you righteous? That Jew would absolutely affirm that he's righteous. But they rejected Christ. And Jesus has gone to the Father and they see Him no longer and they are convicted concerning their false righteousness. And look at verse 11. Thirdly, the Spirit convicts what? Concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. What does that mean? Concerning judgment. Well, the world in the Gospel of John has been putting Jesus on trial. It's the way John presents Jesus. Jesus is being put on trial. People are constantly talking about Jesus. And they are weighing the evidence whether or not Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Most especially with the Sanhedrin and the high priest and the religious leaders. Even before they've put Jesus on trial, they've put Jesus on trial in their conversations about Him. And what is the judgment they render concerning Jesus? Well, their judgment is that He's not the Messiah. That He's not the Christ. And all this reaches its culmination when Jesus is arrested and He's put on trial. And what do they conclude about Jesus? He's not the Messiah. And He must be put to death. And so the work of the Holy Spirit then will be to convict the world that their judgment concerning Christ was wrong. Their judgment concerning Christ was wrong. Why is that? Because the ruler of this world is judged. That is the ultimate demonstration from Christ that their judgment about Him was wrong. What is that? That at the very moment when Satan has announced victory over Christ by putting Him to death, that very death brings about the forgiveness of sins and Christ is resurrected from the dead. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Think about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit like this. The Spirit's work of, of conviction is like a prosecuting attorney. When a sinner comes to see his own guilt and being deserving of God's wrath. The Spirit's work of conviction is like a mirror when the sinner becomes convinced that what he sees in his reflection is sinfully filthy. The Spirit's work of conviction is like a patient who finally comes to terms with a difficult, horrible diagnosis that he or she is indeed terminally ill with the infection of sin. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Convincing us of our guilt and of our sin. And it amazes me that yet there are so many churches that say that it is wrong or unnecessary to preach about what? To preach about sin. The, the culture, the church culture says, don't preach about sin. You don't need to tell people that they're sinful. They'll, they'll reach that conclusion on their own. And besides, it's so unloving for you to preach about sin. I mean, if you know, it's unloving not to preach about sin. People need their hearts to be exposed by the Word of God that the Holy Spirit may bring conviction to their hearts. They will come to realize that they are full of sin and they are hopelessly lost and in despair without grace and forgiveness from the Lord. So preach about sin. In your witness, talk about sin. I love those videos from Ray Comfort. So, not during the sermon. Don't look up YouTube during the sermon. But later on, go to YouTube and just look up Ray Comfort. And you'll begin to see all these, uh, all these examples where he goes and witnesses to people. And he witnesses to people using God's law. And he will ask these people, do you think you're a good person? Do you think you're righteous? And all of them, of course, say, yes, I think I'm a good person. Do you think that God would view you as a good person? Oh, yeah, I think God would view me as a good person. He says, do you mind if I test that a little bit? And then he begins to use God's law. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever coveted the belongings or the property of another person? Have you ever used God's name in vain? And he'll just go right down the list. He'll say, so what you're telling me by your own admission is you're a liar, a coveter, an adulterer, you're a blasphemer. Do you still think that you are a good person? And it's awesome to see conviction come upon the person's face. And they begin to say, well, if God judged me that way, I, I suppose I'm not. And then he presents the gospel to them. We know this to be true, don't we? We do not know how good the good news is until we know how bad the bad news is. We need to hear the good news. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear that Christ has given his life for all the elect and that he loves them. But yet we also need to see our own filthy, sinful hearts that need forgiveness by God's grace. We need both. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Number two, I want you to see here, not only does the Spirit bring conviction through the disciples' witness, but the Holy Spirit brings illumination from the disciples' witness. Jesus tells them in verse 12 that there are many things that He has to say to them, but they cannot bear it now. So, what is Jesus getting at here? Follow the logic, okay? Jesus has many things to say to them. Many things about what? Well, Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus is about to die. He's about to be put into the grave and three days later resurrected and then exalted, ascending up into heaven. And there are many things that they do not yet understand about that. 
All of what that means. And so Jesus tells them in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, should underline that word truth there. Notice in verse 7, this theme, Jesus says, I tell you what, the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. And then He uses the same word when He speaks about the Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, what does He do? He guides you into all what? All truth. So Jesus, what He is getting at here is that He is the apex of truth. That all of the truth that God has revealed up to this, up to this point finds its culmination, its apex, its height in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross, at His death, at His burial, at His resurrection, and at His exaltation. That all the truth that God has revealed through the past, all of it is going to find its culmination in the work of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here is that they can't bear it right now, but the Spirit of truth will come and He will guide them into what? All truth. He will explain it to them. He will bring it to light for them so that they can understand. The Spirit speaks, verse 13, not on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus, the things that are to come are what? The cross. That's what He's saying. The cross is coming and the Spirit, when He comes, He will explain it to you. He will bring illumination to your heart about the work of the cross. What does He do? He glorifies Christ. He doesn't come to glorify Himself. He comes to glorify Christ. Verse 14. He will take what is of Christ and He will declare it to the disciples. So notice the connection here. Jesus, God is, is, is in glorious light and Jesus Christ comes in His incarnation and He reveals the glory of His Father. And then, after that work is completed on earth, Christ is exalted where He returns to the glory of the Father and the Father and the Son send the Spirit and the Spirit's work is to glorify the Son. Isn't that awesome? Right? So you notice the connection here. This is the work of the Spirit. He glorifies Christ. How does He do that? He takes what is of Christ and He declares it to the disciples, bringing illumination to the disciples. Well, how can Jesus do that? What right does He have to do that? Well, the Father has given everything to the Son. Look at verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, follow the succession here regarding the disciples. So, the disciples will become apostles. They will become eyewitnesses to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be there to see Him crucified. They will see Him resurrected up, uh, out of the grave. And they will see Him ascend and be exalted into heaven. And then they become the eyewitnesses who establish what? They establish the church. And they take the illumination that they have received from the Holy Spirit and they do what with it? 
You got it. They write the Bible. They, they write the New Testament. They preserve that illumination for the church of all ages so that you and I have a faithful eyewitness account not just of historical facts that are true, but an account of why all the historical facts matter. And it is through this work that the Holy Spirit brings illumination to our hearts that we might put our faith and trust in Christ. Think about illumination and conviction together. If conviction is like a prosecuting attorney who makes a sinner see his guilt, then illumination is like the judge who declares his penalty has already been paid by Christ. If conviction is like a mirror that reveals a sinner's sinfulness, then illumination is like the washing from Christ that the sinner grasps hold of. If conviction is like a patient receiving a terminally ill diagnosis, then illumination is like the patient realizing that the gospel is the cure for all their sin. went back as I was studying for this message and looked up some of the conversion stories of some of the great fathers of the faith. Spurgeon has quite an interesting conversion story where he, as a young man, got caught in a blizzard on his way to church and found himself in a small country church with but a few people gathered and the minister, unable to get to church, and perhaps a deacon filling in, filling in impromptu. And the deacon's text was from Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look to me and you will be saved. And Spurgeon recounts that it was a horrible sermon. He said that the guy was a simpleton, that he did the best he could to expound the Scripture for five to seven minutes, and that was about all that he had. And then he looked at Spurgeon, singled him out, right in the middle of the sermon, and he said, young man, you look miserable. And you will be miserable lest you obey what this text says and look upon Christ and be saved. Conviction came upon Spurgeon that day and he saw himself as a miserable wretch. But illumination came to his heart that day when he saw the goodness of Christ as the answer for his sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, Martin Luther, as a Roman Catholic monk, lived in constant conviction about his sin. Luther was plagued by his sin. He always felt like he was living under the guillotine of God, waiting for the axe to fall and to, to send his soul to hell. And so Luther did everything that he could in his own strength, in his own power, to make penance for his sins, taking pilgrimages and constantly going to confession over and over and over again, never having any assurance that his sins were pardoned, always living under conviction. But illumination came to Luther the day he read Romans 3.24 with new eyes. 
that he was justified by grace as a gift from God through the redemption in Christ Jesus. R.C. Spohl. New conviction and sin. R.C. Sproul was a freshman in college and it's recounted that he was in student lounge and an upperclassman was sitting there in the lounge reading his Bible and he called Luther over uh, to talk to him and to show him the Scripture and to talk about the Scripture with him and the upperclassman was reading Ecclesiastes 11.3. Get this. Here's the text. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. That's the verse that the Lord used to bring conviction to Sproul's heart. It's recounted that he saw himself as a dead tree rotting from the inside out. And then illumination came to him when he reached out and grasp for God's mercy and grace through Christ. John Calvin. Calvin didn't talk much about his conversion. Not much is known about it. But in the preface to his Latin commentary on the Psalms, Calvin wrote, God subdued my heart to docility, which had become hardened to the truth of the Gospel. Conviction was seeing his hardened heart that rejected the Gospel. But when God made his heart docile, the Gospel became illuminated to John Calvin. You and I, our witness is not helpless. It's not disadvantaged in any way. Because God has given us His Spirit. And we know not where the wind of the Spirit blows, do we? We don't know what seed that we throw out there will will bear fruit. We don't know when the Spirit will move upon a person's heart and life and our witness to them. But we do know that the Spirit works to bring conviction of sin and illumination to the good news of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. If you ever feel disheartened about your witness, don't be. Just be faithful. And trust the Lord to do His work in His own sovereign time and in His own sovereign will. And I wonder this morning, if you who are sitting here, if you have conviction of sin. Maybe this is the first time this morning that you have ever had conviction for your sin. Maybe today is the first day that you have ever felt true grief and sorrow in your heart that the sin that you have done is a horrible offense to God and that you deserve His wrath and His punishment. And if you see that this morning, if that is plaguing your heart this morning, that's a, that's a work of God's Spirit. And you are called to repent not only of your sins, but to reach out and to grasp unto the Lord Jesus Christ who has given His life for you, that you might live in Him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Spirit's work which cause, calls sinners to repentance that shows them the 
conviction of sin, but also gives them new life. That makes Christ beautiful to them. Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word in our church to do the work that You have ordained for it to. That we would be encouraged to persevere in our faith. And that the lost would be called to repentance. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.